This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, super fast hot question. Vancouver City Council approves that 7% property tax hike. Should you Do you think property owners in this city should pay more additional taxes? Would you say, yeah, they're wealthy, they own a home? Or would you say, no, go tax somebody else? At CKNW on Twitter is where you will find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line, too. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. Hey, let's talk about yesterday's Vancouver City budget. A 7% property tax increase in Vancouver for the year 2020. That is to fund the city's one6 billion dollar budget a lot of spending going up at city hall and property taxes going up to seven percent could have been worse remember the city at one point was talking about oh maybe it'll be like 8.2 percent i guess everyone's supposed to be happy now whoo it was only seven percent a lot of people unhappy about it though got a great panel to talk about it george affleck is in the studio former vancouver city counselor george thank you for coming in happy to be here mike also on the line is Alex Hemingway. He's a, an economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Alex, thank you. Thanks for having me. Alex, let me go to you first. You're really kind of shaking it up on Twitter there with some of your tweets about this uh, property tax increase. You think this is actually a pretty reasonable increase, right? Or do you think it should be even more? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of uh, key pieces of context to keep in mind. Vancouver has the lowest property tax rate in, in North America, and that's because as uh, land wealth, property wealth in the city has exploded uh, over the past couple of decades, we consistently, uh, through the mill rate system, lower uh, uh, the property tax rate on assessed value to compensate for that. So, you know, uh, as we've seen that explosion of land wealth, uh, that's one uh, key piece. The other piece is when you compare these property tax increases in dollar terms to uh, the increases that our uh, renters are going to face in this city uh, this next coming year, uh, they actually look quite modest. So, you know, just for example, if, if you're talking about a, the median condo, you're looking at a property tax increase of about $75 uh, next year. Uh, say you're renting an $1,800 a month condo. Uh, you're going to be paying another uh, $561 uh, in rent over the course of the whole year under the allowable rent increase. So that's uh, should be kept in mind, I think. Yeah, but the uh, the maximum rent increase, though, pegged at inflation, was only, what, 2.5% this year? Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. So just that 2.6% increase next year over, over the course of a year will add up to $561 uh, increase in rent for that $1,800 uh, a month rental. So you're so you're saying you're paying more if you're a renter than if you're an owner. You're, you're paying a lot more. You're being squeezed okay. hard. And the other crucial thing is you're you're being squeezed without any of the benefits from the the huge uh, land value, land wealth gains that we've seen in the city uh, okay. over the past many years. Okay, George Affleck, what do you say to that? Well, this uh, approach to defining taxation based on the value of your home is actually a misinformation. To me, it's you have to think about the basket of goods that you purchase every year, whether it be your groceries or whatever, and taxation and your rent and all those things are part of it. And and it's important that we have to go, how much is how affordable is Vancouver? And if we increase the cost of living, then it becomes more expensive and everything else becomes more expensive. And to the renter issue, uh, you know, I find that challenging because the, the the biggest problem we have is getting people to 
build rental units. If you make it less profitable or even viable for a, a developer or anybody to build market rental, and by the way, uh, private um, uh, and uh, social housing have to pay taxes as well, uh, it becomes less interesting to build uh, yeah. rental housing. But just in Vancouver, the population, you know, it's the rate of, infl- of growth of taxation is triple the rate of uh, based on the population growth prorated uh, so do you per think- year. Do you think, therefore, George, that this 7% property tax hike is too high? <laughs> Do you think? Plus, 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 right? You get the services on top of that. So it's over 8% uh, cost at the taxpayers of Vancouver on average. So absolutely, it's the highest taxation that I've been able to find in the history of Vancouver. So, what, about, what about all those soaring property values that uh, Alex just talked about? Aren't, aren't people sitting on a pile of wealth if you're a homeowner? Well, there's an assumption that you will take the wealth out of your home and put it into paying your taxes. That doesn't work that way. We all know that doesn't work that way. Your property value, sure, goes up, it goes down. Uh, it changes over time. What you have to think about is how affordable is Vancouver? Obviously, it's really expensive to buy a home now. If you want to enter the market, it's absolutely impossible no matter what. And if you want to buy, say, a small condo, plus your your, your maintenance fees, plus your taxes, yeah, yeah. plus, 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 every, you know, this bullshit cup of coffee argument drives me crazy. How many cups of coffee is it going to take before we're stretched beyond what's possible to even survive and Vancouver becomes only for the rich. Okay, okay. well, we're a family radio station here, George. Is Sorry. Okay. Uh, Alex, what do you say to that? Well, a, a couple of key things here. In terms of uh, that wealth in the land, we're talking about an increase of almost $200 billion just in the wealth in the land, not, not in the buildings on top of it, and just since the mid-2000s. So we're not talking about small potatoes here. That land wealth is real wealth. It, it's tends to be illiquid if you live in the house. We do have uh, generous uh, property tax deferral uh, uh, programs in BC. You can get your property tax taxes deferred if you're a family with children, you've got kids in university, family dependent on you. Uh, if you're over 55, generous program there. Uh, and, you know, I, I, we just have to keep in mind that, again, this is the lowest property tax rate in North America. But even if, as George is suggesting, you look at average properties across cities, you know, compare us to Toronto, for example, uh, just in an average property, which is worth a lot more in Vancouver than it is in Toronto, you're still paying a lower property tax uh, bill in Vancouver by uh, no, 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 no. Well, you're paying and, and you're not including. You can't compare apples to oranges. You have to, you look at Burnaby, it pays a lot less taxes than us. Bottom line taxation costs per person. You got to get away from this uh, level of, in, of percentages and talk about the actual no, I just dollar gave you in, in dollar terms, I can give you the exact dollar terms between an average property in Toronto and in Vancouver. It's much lower in Vancouver. You can't compare. Toronto has other costs associated. In Vancouver, we have the things like Metro Vancouver, significant costs. These are service fees. You look at the pay-as-you-go system, which is a way to hide uh, costs for the city of Vancouver. So we have doubled down in Vancouver over the last 10 years. We've, we've increased taxes above the rate of inflation, plus we've increased service fees triple or quadruple times the rate of inflation. So people, and, and my argument when I was in council was always to say, if we're going to increase and do a pay-as-you-go, then the, the opposite for taxation should happen. Property taxes should go down while pay-as-you-go yeah. goes up. But both me, went up, so we double-dipped. Let me ask you this, Alex. When you analyze this city's budget, do you think that the spending is out of control in any ways? Because I think some people might say, well, okay, a 7% property tax hike, that's pretty hefty. But if it's going to be if it's going to be spent on hiring new police officers, which we're told it is, well, garbage collection, repairing roads, you know, basic services provided by a city, I think most people would be okay with that. But when you look at certain parts of this budget, like the communications budget, like on spin doctors and press releases and YouTube videos, 
This has gone up like 81% in five years. I mean, this is crazy. The whole budget has doubled in 10 years. The capital budget's tripled in, or doubled in three years. Mm-hmm. Don't you think the spending is a little out of whack? I think when we look around us, we can see that there's a tremendous amount of pent-up need for public investment in some crucial areas. First and foremost, uh, direct public investment in affordable housing, which uh, the city can and, and should uh, contribute to, and in fact should contribute to more. Uh, Child care, transit, these are all huge needs. I think it is incumbent on people uh, to say what they would like to see cut. I certainly uh, uh, would tend to agree with uh, what some of the councillors put forward yesterday, which is that uh, we could shift some of those increases, for example, the increase in the police budget, not necessarily a priority from my point of view, shift that to that uh, investment in housing that we desperately need. This, but uh, if, if people want to see cutbacks, I think uh, uh, they should be explicit yeah, about what this, they're going to be. Sure. And, you know, the yeah, other, this, the other crucial the, thing this, here is... Now, this uh, passed the buck from the federal and provincial government. Downloading the cost of housing to cities is what's killing us here. The the, the capital budget is doubled because we've doubled, we're actually half that capital budget, over $200 million is going to housing. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be building housing, but the province and the federal government need to step up too. But they're downloading to cities across this region. Burnaby's now stepping up, which they hadn't in years. It's not fair on, on, on cities to re- rely on them to pay for housing now, and it's a huge portion of the budget. As a result, we don't see community centers being built. We don't see pools being built. We don't see parks being done. We don't see proper road construction. We don't see so many things because our, the obsession by cities to well, have to do, housing, to do housing because the province and federal government are not doing their job. They've downloaded it like they've downloaded so much of schools to parents. This is a problem in our society, and I don't think cities should be taking this this cost to bear. This well, is Alex, overly burdening to cities. All levels of government need to contribute, absolutely. Uh, and we do need investments, not just in housing, in our community centers, uh, in, in all the amenities in our community. That's absolutely crucial. But it's crucial. not happening. Our budget's and gone from $900 million to $1.6 billion in 10 years. And do you see a new community center built in those 10 years in Vancouver? Not one community center has been built in 10 10 years and the budget has gone to operating budget and if from you wanna, if 900 you million about to 1.6 billion. Come on. You want to talk about shifting uh, money around in the budget? Absolutely. Let's talk about you know, where we're shifting from and where we're shifting to in terms of increasing those investments. And uh, we do need to keep in mind that incredibly low property tax rate. Uh, uh, we have Get hundreds of billions ta- of dollars in land wealth. That argument is a misinformation. That okay. is so no, that, misinforming. As we continue talking about yesterday's 7% property tax hike in the city of Vancouver, former city councillor George Affleck says it's too high. Alex Hemingway disagrees. What do you say? Call on the open line and have your say. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go right to your calls. Mike and Langley. Hi. Oh, hello there. Yeah, um... I, I lived in Vancouver for many years and then left, you know, way back. But that city's been out of control for years. And this is speaking to Alex. You know, you're using percentages and all this bull crap when realistically you've raised the dollar value of people's taxes by like double the rate of inflation for 10 straight years. Businesses are closing. I have people that run businesses there. It's ridiculous. You need, you know, you look at the amount of money that this city spends on stupid things, you know. Um, okay, it's, okay. It's incredible. Let's see what he says. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to talk about this both in, you know, in percentage terms and dollar terms, any terms uh, you like that 
property tax increase for the for the median condo in dollar terms is going to be six dollars a month next year. Uh, and compare that to the situation of a renter; it's a lot more severe. You know, we do have a serious crisis in this city uh, in housing. I think George and I agree that we need additional investment in areas like housing, community centers, all the things that make our communities great. Uh, property taxes is one tool to do that, particularly when we've seen a couple hundred billion dollars in land wealth created in the city. Uh, but it is a blunt tool, and you know, we've we've been calling for a long time for reforms to the property tax system. Uh, for example, to bring in brackets like we have with the income tax system, so the highest end properties are going to pay the highest rates. That's a, a power that the city has been asking for for, for uh, over multiple okay. administrations and should be allowed by the province. George Affleck. Well, to me, the whole thing is broken. The way taxation should work, it should be based on the budgeting from zero up. So you go, what do we need to do? What are the basics that we should do? And then what are the extras we should do? And how much is that going to cost? And should we not exceed a certain amount? And if we, if, if it's, say, rate of inflation increases per year, which most cities in the region are around that rate, there's only Vancouver that's at seeing at 7%, then you have a way of budgeting. So you have to go, we can't do this, we can't do that, but we can do all these things that we know are our basic requirements. That's where Vancouver has lost its way. It's pushed all the basics to the side, put all these other sort of uh, things that are more for public relations initiatives than anything like else. Like what? Like what would you put ha- on housing, that list? Absolutely. We haven't, we've been, housing has been something that we've spent so much money on, more on staffing than we do on actually facilitating and building things. You know that the actual construction of housing is down this year on, on rental housing than, when, than we approved when I was there. We are failing actually building rental housing because we have created yeah. such a bureaucratic nightmare at City Hall. You can't get permits. You, Where's all the money going? We look around our streets. It's a mess. So the, 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 the mess has to start. You have to look and start from scratch. The new City Council, when they got in, the first thing they should have done is done an assessment. Every department said, where is the money going and how can we improve how efficient City Hall okay. is? And then build your budget from that. They, they did it backwards. Alex, what do you say to that? Well, there's a lot going on there. One thing I'll speak to is that, you know, it's right. It's hard to get rental uh, built in the city. Two things. One, we need more, dramatically more direct public investment in non-market housing. But even on the side of uh, market housing, one of the big barriers to getting it built is, in fact, uh, that we know that it's less profitable to build than condos. A part of the reason for that is uh, the enormous subsidies that we give in this country and in this province to owned housing. That actually makes the economics of building condos a lot more lucrative than than building rental. It doesn't matter what you're building in Vancouver. The problem with building in Vancouver, whether it be rental or owning, is the cost of construction through the city hall's fee increases, which as you see in this budget are up, you know, almost 10% or more. The cost of the speed at which you can get your permit to build, which is super slow, five years on average to build anything in this city. And then the overall tax increases that we're seeing. The cost of doing anything in this in this city is out of out of control, and it's pushing people who want to build rental strata. It doesn't matter. Nobody wants to come here anymore to build stuff unless it's luxury condos, and that is not filling the gap. And we have to yeah. subsidize market rental to a significant degree to encourage developers to do it. This is all backwards. It's all backwards. Alex. Well, we should stop subsidizing owned housing so much that makes it. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't subsidize, we subsidize market rental housing in this city through the Rental One Hundred program, and that is where the subsidies are going. Millions and millions. Millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars going to Rental 100 program in lost CACs, DCLs, and and other revenue that we would have had that have to encourage private developers to build market rental. That is oh. not how we should be operating this city. 
all levels of government are subsidizing owned housing. You know, the, the capital gains exemption for principal residences is that massive multi-billion dollar subsidy. And if you want to talk about it, that's at a sale. Level, the that's at that the sale level. You're ta- I'm talking about construction. If you want to build more faster, population increase of Vancouver on average for every year that I've existed has been about 1% per year. So in the current population, looking at 6,000 people per year moving into Vancouver. We need to make sure we keep up with that pace or ahead of it by a couple percent. We've got the, the system. We've got the actual density in place through through zoning. We just don't have anybody who wants to build it because it's too expensive. Whether it be well, rental not, or yeah, it's not one or the other. Alex, let me. We just got a minute left, guys. Let me, Alex. Let me ask you this real quick. I mean, George obviously sees some waste down at City Hall and wasteful spending. Are, are you, would you admit that there's some waste down there? Like, I'm, I'm looking at one line item here in the budget. On, like, I go back to that one I mentioned earlier. Communications. If you go back to 2015, just a few years ago, it was 1.6 million dollars. In this budget, 2.9 million dollars. It's 81 percent increase in just five years. There's 300 thousand when Sam Sullivan was there. It's crazy. Well, as I say, I'm very open to, to moving things around, and, and people should make the case in specific cases. I've said in the case that I'm not so sure about this police budget increase. Communications seems like a natural place to look. Of course, we do want our government communicating with citizens, too, so it's not an automatic okay. thing. But you look at it, and you see if it makes sense. George, real uh, quick, the bottom real quick line we're is, out of time. On average, $100,000 per staff person. So for, from 6 to 43 communication staff, that's $4 million. That's a half a percentage of tax increase okay. right there. Remember savings. that lowest rate in North America, folks. Okay. We continue to talk about that 7% property tax hike approved by Vancouver City Council yesterday. Taking your calls on at 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. As you heard our debate segment there in uh, the, the last hour, George Affleck, the former Vancouver City Councilor, he thinks this property tax hike is too high. Alex Hemingway, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, saying, what are you talking about? People are sitting on mountains of wealth here if they own a home in Vancouver. That tax hike is still is fine. Alex still on the line. Uh, let's go to your call. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Steve in Vancouver. Hi. Hi. So so what what did they say was going to be? The, they said the average tax hike was going to be 80 bucks For a condo? Yeah. yeah. What is it for a condo, Alex? For, for a condo, it's about seventy-five bucks uh, now that it's down to seven percent from eight point two. Yeah, a year for, over the whole year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what did they base that on? I, I'm, you know, and and if if it's just condos, um, I'm sorry, but Vancouver isn't made out of six hundred thousand dollar condos. It's it's averaged like two million dollar houses. So it's a real bad statistic. Uh, I'm a condo owner. I can't raise rent barely anything. And every year the assessment goes up, the taxes go up. I'm not sitting on a mound of money. I'm renting it to a guy for a really good rate, and I can't put it up anymore. So you know what I'm doing this spring? I'm going to sell it because I can't. I, I'm getting sick of this stuff. So you know what's going to happen to this poor guy? He's going to go somewhere. He's probably going to pay 300 bucks a month more because he's been sitting in my condo for seven years getting 2% raises. But you're this gonna... is what you guys are doing to people. You're gonna. That's you're what gonna, they're doing to people. Well, you're gonna sell your condos because you got to pay another seventy-five bucks a year per condo. It's been seven years of the crap, Michael. Yeah. Every year, it's the same crap. There's homeowners this, empty that. You, what's the point, Alex? What do you say to him? 
Well, you know, I, I, I do find it a little bit tough, you know, if you're in the position that you're actually the, the landlord of a secondary property that you don't even live in in this city, that's a, that's a very nice uh, position to be in. And of course, uh, you know, we were talking about earlier the, the rent increase, even under that, the, the rent control that we have in this province, it's capped at that 2.6% increase. If you're paying $1,800 for a condo, that's not too bad in this city. Uh, your rent's going to go up over the course of the whole year added together by $561. Yeah, but, you know, if you take on the cumulative impact on this guy's costs as the landlord, I guess what he's saying is, I'm getting out of this game. I'm just going to sell these condos because I can't put the rent up to match my costs. So isn't that going to make the city worse off if we start having rental properties get sold off? Well, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical when I hear people say that, but you know, I'd, far be it for me, you know, maybe that is what he's going to do. Uh, uh, but if that's the case, that's that uh, condo is either going to uh, be a home for someone who's able to buy it, or it's going to be yeah. uh, a home that's rented out again by by a different buyer. Uh, so it's it's you know it's not okay. disappearing. Let's go to Mike in Vancouver. Hi, Mike. Hey there, fellas. Just wanted to quickly chime in. My question is. Is it why that the landlord is only allowed to raise the rent by 2%, but the city is allowed to raise the property tax by whatever they want? How, how, do you, how, how is it justified? Why, why can't I raise the rent on my tenants by 7% also? Well, well the, the answer is politics because the NDP government stepped in there and put the, a cap on the maximum rent hike because they have a lot of renters vote NDP, or at least they think they do. That's that's the obvious answer, but Alex, what would you say to him? Well, look, uh, you know that that's a decision that's going to be made by city council, and I would just say, and you know, we talked about this a little bit before the break as well. But the the, the fact is that uh, if you own a property in the city and you've owned it for a number of years, you benefited from that couple of hundred billion dollars of uh, land wealth increase. You know, the the house that I rented in until quite recently increased, the, just the land increased in value by one point four million dollars. Yeah, but the thing uh, is, it's just only since increased, the mid two thousand. Hello, hello, go ahead, are you there? Go ahead, yeah, go ahead, yeah, Mike. It's only it's only increased if you sold it. Only if you sold it, it's increased. Yeah, you got to live in no, the you thing, haven't right? cashed you it out. It. You know, it, it, it certainly increased. It's real wealth, but it's, no, it's, but it's, it's not, not real money because I live in it. It's not real money. You're uh, lying it, it, to people. You guys are liars. All you want is get into all everybody's right, Mike, pocket. Mike, take, take it easy, man. Take it easy. He's you know, well, I, I do understand that feelings run really high about this. Absolutely. And, it does, and, and they do for renters, too, who have been squeezed much, much harder uh, than property owners. And it's telling, you know, sometimes people say that that land wealth isn't real. I, I put out uh, just sort of a, a thought experiment on Twitter recently that said, you know, there are renters in the city that would be happy to pay your uh, $75 or even $200 uh, a property tax increase will cover that for you if you'll cut us in on some portion of those land wealth gains when when it comes time to sell that that provoked a very hostile reaction which i think tells you that actually that wealth is real let's go to tony in vancouver hi tony hi how are you doing good Listen, i'm sick and tired of this game 10 years i've had a condo up in vancouver and with your speaker there or your person there that's telling well we're wealthy and in uh, in the, in the increases, listen. Enough is enough already. What are you guys doing with the homeowners tax, the foreign buyers tax? How many more taxes are you going to be putting on us? Enough is enough already. My place is going up for sale this spring. How, how long have you owned the condo? Ten years. Ten years. It was good for the first three or four years. Right now, I can't even break even. So your your speaker or your your gentleman from the city there, he's uh, not well, getting he's, his number. He's right. not he's not from the city. But wh- how much did you pay for the condo ten years ago? 
Oh well, that's a different story. I mean, uh, what did you pay for uh, single? Well, well, how much? Did, how much? How much did you pay for it? I paid at that time about four hundred and sixty thousand dollars. What, what do you figure it's worth now? Well, it's worth about seven. But don't forget the strata fees and the repair fees, and uh, it keeps eating it away. Again, these guys keep raising up the taxes, and it's taking my equity out of the place. But I've had enough of the roller coaster, just like the following uh, uh, caller. Yeah. Okay, Alex. What do you say to him? Well, look, I, and I want to be really clear here. We, we don't want to be pitting people against each other. And, you know, if people live in their home, for example, we don't want anyone being pushed out of their home. That's why we have quite a generous property tax deferral program in, in the province. And, and perhaps it needs to be expanded for some other special cases. It covers hey, a lot of ground already. It's not your birthright to own a home. It's not your birthright to own a home, man. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not really sure what, what he's getting at there. But th- just, just the... I mean, one other piece of the puzzle here is that, and we haven't had a chance to talk about this, is that those very low property tax rates, I talked about it being the lowest rate in North America, those actually drive up housing prices over time. They encourage speculation, speculative investment in our market, and they actually lead to the inflation of mortgages. Buyers are able to access larger mortgages. So actually, uh, uh, that's that's important too, and that's another reason why it's a problem that they're so low. Let's squeeze in one more call. Victor in Surrey. Oh, hey, how you doing? Um, look at all those people that are fighting over their properties there. Go talk to an accountant first, because uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of things they've got to consider before they sell the property, if it's a revenue property or they're owner-occupied. Okay, number two, interest rates are really low. Okay, I don't know what the city of Vancouver would borrow money at. Uh, Bank of Canada Prime is 1.75. What is the city of Vancouver going to pay? Two, 2.5. Borrow some money. Oh. Okay, is, can the city borrow money, Alex? Yeah, they can borrow money. Uh, uh, most of their capital spending has to come, uh, there has to be a referendum for, for most of it at election time. But they can't run a deficit budget, right? That's illegal, isn't it? Y- yeah, no, they can't run a deficit year to year. If they want to borrow for capital expenditure, they need to go to referendum. Right, and aren't, they, the spend, most part. aren't they spending a lot of money on interest now and the accumulated kind of debt they've rung up? Well, I haven't seen those specific numbers for the city, but as the caller says, interest rates are very low right now. So if you're using those dollars for productive investments and, and, and things that bring value to our city, that the returns okay. on those investments are going to likely outpace those interest rates. Squeeze in. Richard in Vancouver. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Um, hey, listen, um, I, I, I just... I, I, I am going to echo the, um, the sentiments of a lot of previous other callers. I think that, you know, we're living within our means or trying to. I yeah. think it's up for government to live within their means. There's so much wasteful spending in the city, like George had said about the communications department, yeah. um, the proliferation of hiring more staff. You know, George is also right about the downloading of uh, purpose-built rental and and uh, housing costs and i as a taxpayer i don't think it's my job to you know like provide free housing for people that and a lot of these people don't even want to work right okay okay thank you for the call i think the the bottom line for a lot of people alex is is the spending out of control at city hall and people i don't i think most people don't mind paying for the services that they receive we need more cops we need more garbage collectors yeah we need more people to fill the potholes yeah i'm going to pay for that but when you see the entire budget of the city double in a matter of 10 years or you see uh capital spending double in just three years i think that's when people are saying hang on a second here 
this is getting out of control. Or that communication spending up 81% in five years on spin doctors and YouTube videos. I mean, that's, that's crazy. No, I think it, it, it's right to look in particular places whether that police budget makes sense, whether that communication uh, budget makes sense, and whether that should be actually reallocated to uh, the most urgent needs uh, like the opioid crisis and, and the need for uh, affordable housing in this city, for sure. Okay. Oh. Gentle- gentlemen, thank you both for coming on. I really appreciate it. George no Affleck, a former Vancouver City Councilor. Alex Hemingway, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Family doctors in British Columbia being urged now to annually screen patients starting at age 12 to prevent alcohol addiction, a leading cause of harm in our society. The guidelines are developed by the BC Center on Substance Use, endorsed by the province. Let's check in now with Dr. Keith Ahamad. He's an addictions medicine specialist at the BC Center on Substance Use. He helped write these uh, guidelines. Hi, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, age 12 sounds like awfully young to start screening someone for alcohol addiction. Why, do you th- why is that necessary? Well, I guess it, it does indeed sound uh, young. I think the um, latest statistics that we've seen across the country are quite concerning. A quarter of youth um, have reported consuming any alcohol within the past, past year. Uh, one in five Canadians greater than the age of 12, really, they're classified now as heavy drinkers, and the highest proportion being between 18 and 34. But we also know that intervening early really in any health issue is critically important. And as, as over the past uh, couple of decades here in British Columbia, we've seen the amount of alcohol people are consuming is increasing and uh, youth consuming alcohol continues to go up. And the, the health harms associated with alcohol consumption over that same time is skyrocketing. Primary care visits uh, for alcohol-related conditions and hospitalizations as a de- direct cause yeah. of alcohol are way up. So it's it's really important for us to intervene early on this in this health issue. Alcohol is a brutal substance that can just inflict so much harm. I've seen it up close, and I, I know a lot of our listeners probably have too. When you're talking about screening for a, a kid as young as 12, how does how do you do that? How do you how do you screen a 12-year-old <laughs> for alcohol addiction? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think just um, the important piece of the puzzle here, I think, is that we're we're um, uh, recommending that a lot of this work is done in primary care because family doctors have longitudinal relationships with patients, and just having those open conversations around substance use and, in particular, alcohol use with it on the rise, I think, is is critically important. And then screening for mental health conditions around the same time, but family doctors are very well trained in. Uh, screening for a whole host of health conditions. But the one issue that we we recognize is that doctors are not well-trained in screening for uh, alcohol addiction specifically. So just having those open conversations uh, around alcohol, and there's really excellent evidence actually for intervening early around uh, alcohol and substance use and having these brief interventions significantly reduces alcohol consumption. And we know when people continue to drink more over time, about 20% of people will develop an alcohol addiction. So we really need to intervene very early with these people. Okay, if you have a, a young person who is uh, showing those early signs of addiction, I mean, it's a heartbreaking to think of a 12-year-old drinking. I mean, I just find that uh, that terrible to think, uh, terrible to ponder. Um, what would be the what would be the regimen or the prognosis for a kid who's drinking that young? Just get off of alcohol <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear that the brain continues to to develop well into the 20s and um, alcohol is neurotoxic. So it's important from a public health standpoint that we're screening people really early. I think that 
most Canadians have become really kind of relaxed around alcohol and don't really understand the health harms associated with consuming alcohol. Uh, alcohol as a molecule actually is directly related to about seven different types of cancer and over 200 dif- different health conditions, including um, uh, injuries. So it's, I think a really important piece here is that most people don't understand how harmful and toxic alcohol consumption can be. We've spent a lot of time in media and and education talking about illegal drugs uh, over the past 20 years, but um, our culture has really become very relaxed uh, around alcohol consumption. In the early 2000s, we've deregulated alcohol in British Columbia. It's more available, and as a result, people are drinking more, and there's a, a significant fallout from that. How much is a safe amount to drink, like for an adult, like a, a few drinks a week? Is that okay? Well, that's a, a good point. I think it's important to note that we would there really is no safe amount for any substance. Uh, there are low-risk drinking guidelines in Canada where we're recommending no more than uh, 10 drinks a week for women and no more than 15 weeks, uh, 15 drinks a week for men. I'm surprised, and, um, it's, I'm surprised it's that high. That sounds like kind of a lot. It is. Well, yeah. So, And then for, for women, no more than two drinks on one given day and no more than three on one given day for men. And uh, some planned days off because it, for in, in different social circles, it does indeed become just a habit to continue drinking. And as you continue to bathe your brain in this chemical, your, your brain adjusts. And without alcohol, people don't feel well. They have a hard time sleeping and they develop anxiety. So the mental health fallout of continuing to drink alcohol in, in excess of that is, is, uh, is really quite, quite enormous. Uh, last question for you. We just got 30 seconds left. I mean, if someone is in the grips of alcoholism, what kind of treatment is possible? Is it possible for people to just stop drinking, go cold turkey, or are there other effective programs? Yeah. So uh, also an excellent question. I think that varies for many people. And what this guideline, one of the most innovative things for this guideline is well, there's good evidence now for screening people in primary care to figure out if they're going to be at risk of yeah. complicated withdrawal or not. Because for some people, right. stopping drinking can be fatal. But actually, that's the vast minority. And the health system has been focused okay. on that. And okay. we can actually do a very good job of screening people and, and doing this uh, work as an outpatient. It's important stuff. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks very much for drawing attention to this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Dr. Keith Ahmad, uh, addictions medicine specialist, BC Center on Substance Use. Let's bring you a happier story here now. The gift of a Christmas kidney. Earlier this year, Jason Armstrong was one of the 600 people waiting for a kidney in British Columbia. However, thanks to an unexpected donor, Jason and his family have received the best gift ever, a Christmas kidney. Listen to this report now from CKNW contributor Claire Allen. What's the best Christmas gift you've ever received? For the Armstrong family in West Vancouver, this Christmas will be remembered as the one where their dad got the best gift ever, a new kidney. Jason Armstrong is a 48-year-old father of four. For the past year and a half, he has been on a waiting list for a new kidney. Jason is a type 1 diabetic, but says that he started to experience serious health problems about seven years ago. I was down in Australia, and I was having a very hard time breathing, so I came home. I was only down there for three or four days. I came home, and... uh, I woke up the next morning after I got home and I, I couldn't breathe. Sandria so called 911. Ambulance came, took me to Lionsgate. They uh, thought it was a respiratory infection because I was on planes and in Australia. So they uh, they had to intubate me because I stopped breathing. 
ended up uh, being put in a medically induced coma, which transferred into a real coma. And I was on life support for six weeks and they kept treating me for respiratory infections and, you know, giving me the anti-Ebola virus medication. And they gave me so many antibiotics that it started to shut all my organs down and your kidneys take the biggest hit. So that's what wiped my kidneys out. A year later, while on vacation in Las Vegas, Jason's same health issues returned. They did a bunch of tests on me in Vegas, and within two hours, they knew it was congestive heart failure. So they went in and did an emergency heart surgery. They did a six-vessel bypass on me. And at the end of that, the doctor sewed me up and said, okay, you never have to worry about your heart again. Go home. So we went home, everything was fine, and then the kidneys just started getting worse and worse and worse. And then I ended up in uh, end-stage renal failure. While waiting for a kidney, Jason has been on dialysis five days a week for the past year and a half, and it has really taken a toll on him. I have dialysis. I have to go home and sleep. You know, yesterday I was on dialysis for four and a half hours. I got into dialysis at 6.30 in the morning. I got home at 12.30 in the afternoon. I was asleep by 1, and I woke up at 7 at night. And then I'm so tired from that, then I go to bed at 8, and then I woke up this morning at 8. And that's my life. And that's five days a week. It's very difficult, but also we're so blessed that we have dialysis. It's great on one hand, and and, and it's terrible on the other hand that you have to go through it. For Jason and his family, the wait for a kidney donor felt interminable, and they desperately searched for a match. I mean, share your spare. You've got a spare kidney. You don't need two. And I'm not saying this is selfish, but you don't. You need one, and you can save somebody's life, like, so quickly. The Armstrongs searched far and wide for a new kidney. They used Facebook to look for someone who had O-type blood that would match with Jason. They reached out to family, to friends, but no luck. Little did Jason know, a woman who he and his wife had met years ago and sporadically kept in touch with, would step up and offer to donate her kidney in order to save his life. I'm Lori Brown and I'm 55 years old. I own a salon in North Vancouver and that's how all this got started. My wife Andrea hired Lori about 22, 23 years ago to take over um, her clients. She was a hairdresser. We weren't close friends, but you know, we'd come in contact with her every once in a while. We'd see them, you know, once every couple of years, you know, but it's, uh, it was remarkable to reconnect with her. During this time, Jason had a potential match for a kidney donation through a family friend named Tara. However, after nine weeks of testing, Tara was told that although she was a match, her arteries were too small, and therefore doctors told her that she would not be able to donate her kidney to Jason. Lori also knew Tara, and when she heard that this meant that Jason would not be receiving a kidney, she immediately went into action. So I went, don't worry, I'm going to amp up my test. I went in and just started hitting it really hard and I was matching up, matching up. And then I was telling a client about it and I said something about it and I went, oh my God, it's me. And she goes, what? And I go, you heard it here first. I'm the match. I said, I wonder if I can wrangle a Christmas kidney. 
After getting confirmation from medical staff, Lori got the chance to call Jason and tell him the life-changing news. Oh my God, that was, that was the best feeling ever. I, I gotta say, I've lived 55 years and I don't remember ever feeling that excited. I was shaking, um, but he was in a state of shock. He went silent on the phone. Um, and I just said, are you good for surgery on December 23rd? And there was a long break. And then he was just like, oh my God. It, the, the closest thing you can um, relate it to is like winning the lottery. It's like, here is somebody that is going to go through all of this. And she's actually going to not just make a difference in your life. She's actually going to save my life. And, you know, how do you ever, what do you say to a person like that? You, 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 like, thank you isn't enough. For Lori, donating her kidney to Jason was an easy decision. After dialysis just means that he can go and see his kids play in sports, which he hasn't been able to do. He tries, but he's there a half an hour and saying, I gotta go home. It'll give him back his life to do the things with his boys. Um, but with me, I, it now feels like what I'm supposed to do. I haven't liked Christmas for a long time, being in the hair industry, and I worked in a salon in a mall, and I watched two women duke it out over a Barbie. A Barbie, and I was like, this is dumb. And, and so I really got a bad attitude about Christmas. And so I said, this year feels like Christmas, because this is like huge, this is a big thing. But right from the beginning, as soon as I went on board with it, I knew what I was doing. I knew what I gotten myself into. And right from the beginning, I just thought, I got this. Lori and Jason are set for surgery on Monday, December 23rd. I arrive at 6.30 and I get prepped for surgery. And then the Armstrongs come in after me because of course they work on me first. She's gonna be in room A, I'm gonna be in room B. They're gonna harvest the kidney from her bring it over to where I am, stick it in me, sew me up. They said I'll be um, in the hospital maybe three or four days. And then, you know, two weeks of no heavy lifting. And, that, and then she's done. And I'm going to live. As Jason prepares for surgery, he has reflected on what this gift from Lori means to him and his family. We have developed a bond. I, I can't even begin to describe it. We've got this bond. And every time I see her, I'm like, okay, I can't even begin to thank you. She's like, just stop. You don't need to thank me. That's the type of person Lori is. She knows what she's doing. I know what she's doing. And we've, we've got that. So I'm forever going to have a, a special place in my life for Lori. Both Lori and Jason hope that their Christmas kidney will inspire others to consider donating. I think the biggest thing that I want people to know is, number one, the testing that you do for it is a long process, but it's a process that in the end, it can't even compare to how it feels to make that call. I just, it, it's amazing. For me, it just seems like something I can really do. And I'm excited about doing it. I was excited about having a Christmas kidney. <laughs> I just want to know that you can actually make a difference and save somebody's life, whether it's donating blood, donating plasma, um, you know, and it sounds bad, but your organs don't have to die with you. You know, you can you can save so many lives. Sorry for getting emotional, but it's uh it it is. And you know, with the kidneys, you you've you've got two for a reason, and I believe it is to share. So you just say, put your hand up and say, hey, look, I want to help, and you can you can go online and find all the resources and you can do it. To learn more about how you can become a kidney donor, visit transplant.bc.ca. 
For AM980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. That was the sound at BC Place Stadium last April during a walkout by members of a Vancouver Whitecaps supporter group. They did that to protest the club's response to abuse allegations against a former women's soccer coach. Uh, the news, uh, developing news on this one today is the club has now released an independent report on how the situation was handled. The Vancouver Whitecaps, this report commissioned by the Whitecaps, finds the soccer club did not attempt to cover up allegations of misconduct by a former coach in the women's program, but that it failed in its communications with players about the incident. This commission, this uh, report was commissioned by the Whitecaps last May. Uh, they retained a group called the Sport Law and Strategy Group to conduct an independent review of the allegations and uh, the Whitecaps workplace policies and procedures. That probe later expanded to include other incidents, including the 2013 hiring of a coach amid allegations of racism and a 2017 case of alleged sexual assault at a Whitecaps youth residency program. This thing has been a crisis for the Vancouver Whitecaps, to say the least. The Whitecaps saga goes back to a blog post by Sierra McCormick. She's a former Whitecaps women's team player and a Canada women's under-20 national team player. She wrote a blog post detailing allegations of sexually suggestive text messages that she received from a coach. Sierra McCormick, she joins me now on the phone. Hi, thanks for coming on. Uh, no problem. Just to correct a couple of things, I wasn't on the under-20 team myself. I was just with the Whitecaps women's team, um, and I personally didn't receive any of the texts. I, I knew of them. Okay, thank you, Sarah, for, for that. Just for to that. Be clear. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. What do you think about the, the report here today, which I think largely kind of downplays the responsibility of the Whitecaps here, that maybe they could have done a better, a better job, but that there was no, formal, there was no uh, cover-up? Your thoughts? Um, I think that the report was commissioned by a group that they had paid for. So I'm personally not surprised that the results were favorable towards, um, you know, sort of saying or painting the situation in a favorable light for them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people that have followed the blog and, and the information that's been out in the media thus far, I think anybody with a critical, you know, I could sort of see that things could have been done much better. So I think that um, the report and its findings were quite, you know, favorable towards the Whitecaps. But like I said, it was it was a group that the Whitecaps paid for. So I, I wasn't personally surprised. Okay. Do you, do you think it was the report is a whitewash? I mean, do you think they, they didn't really face it head on, the, 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 the crisis or the problems? Um, I think it was just quite vague. Um, yeah. And I, I think, you know, as, as a, a, the first point in it said, you know, uh, we we can see that the organization's done things better since 2008. But then, you know, it fails to mention the fact that 2011, there was a, a, another situation with the Whitecaps women's team. 2017, 
um, you know, that situation with the white caps residency, the boys, you know, escalated to the police. Um, so, I mean, again, that's the kind of thing where it, I guess it just depends on what your version of having done better is. And there's a lot of that kind of vague terminology um, that was in it that I don't necessarily think was reflective of what actually, you know, occurred. Okay, you've very bravely spoken out on the situation, and I'm just checking out your Twitter feed here in the last uh, little while, and you noted that this is a report that, that's dropped in the week before Christmas. Do you, do you think that this has been kind of, I don't know, deliberately timed to hope to sort of fly under the radar or public attention? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I commented in the initial blog that I wrote that I noticed that when the boys, um, that story in 2017 broke, it broke at 5 p.m. on a Friday night. And somebody within the organization, you know, that had worked for the Whitecaps commented that they were, you know, really impressed that I picked up on that because they said that that was, you know, common practice for the organization to be dropping unfavorable news at, at times that it was going to go away quickly. So absolutely, I'm not surprised. Um, that it would be, you know, the Wednesday before Christmas, that that's something that is quite monumental that I think people would be talking about, um, you know, for a period of time, they would hope would get lost kind of under the Christmas rush of things. So I'm not surprised by the timing, no. How about the Canadian Soccer Association? I know they've been, they've had some involvement here. Have, have they changed any of their policies or have they done anything in the, in the wake of this uh, situation? No, and I mean, that that's something that I think, obviously, the Whitecaps have gotten a deserved amount of heat, but I think that yeah. the Canadian Soccer Association has, you know, they're taxpayer-funded, and they've done absolutely nothing um, in terms of any type of, you know, coordinating a, a meeting with everybody or um, anything. They, literally, it's been radio silence from the Canadian Soccer Association, and um, that's highly problematic, obviously, for something that, you know, many, many players were, you know, really gravely affected through their association with the Canadian national team and um, the youth program in, in, in 2008. And I think the fact that um, they haven't stepped forward at all and that they've kind of just enjoyed cruising, you know, outside of the scenes of the Whitecaps. Um, I definitely think that, you know, media government, they're funded by the people, you know, um, and, and they've really dropped the ball. So I, I hope that pressure, you know, gets sort of upped on them now that sort of the Whitecaps, this whole, you know, the whole side of things with the Whitecaps, um, you know, has kind of come to some kind of a close, I guess, in some sense. Um, I, I definitely think that the Canadian Soccer Association has some things to be um, answered for, for sure. I think you deserve a lot of credit for blowing the whistle on this and the brave way that you've, you've spoken out. What have you learned through this saga and this scandal and the, and the report that we see out today? Um, you know, I just think it's so important to, I think, first of all, to just, um, you know, for people that are carrying some kind of um, a, a burden or, or weight. I mean, I this is something that I carried for, ten, you know, 10 years. Um, and I know for me, it's been incredible how, you know, much healing has happened for me personally since this has come up, like, you know, this has all come out. And, and I think just even seeing how other people have been empowered um, and they feel like they have a voice now. That's been an amazing, you know, side part of it. And I think the biggest thing for me was all of it. And I've gotten emotional talking about it. And, and I think yeah. that hopefully I'll hold it together here. But, um, you know, just the way that the fans, um, you know, got behind this. And, and really, like, this whole report wouldn't have happened without all the walkouts and without the Southsiders and Curva Collective and all the fans that, you know, took a stand and walked out of the game. So I think for me, it was, 
you know, they taught me a lesson in terms of, you know, of course I could speak up and say something, but this would not have been amplified to the, you know, the degree it has been if they hadn't gotten behind us the way that they did. And um, so, I mean, I'm eternally, eternally grateful um, for every single person that, you know, took a stand in some way, because I don't think that there would have even been any report if they hadn't done that. So um, just again, a, a massive, massive thank you to everybody. Um, Cause really I think the community has brought it to this point and I think it's only right. going to make it safer for young athletes coming forward. Now that the fact that this, you know, massive spotlight's been shone on all of this. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. That is Kira McCormick, former Whitecaps player, whose blog post, the original blog post on alleged misconduct here uh, inside the team, really got this ball rolling. She was the whistleblower on this one. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. That was the sound of BC Play Stadium last April during a walkout by members of a Vancouver Whitecaps supporter group. They did that to protest the club's response to abuse allegations against a former women's soccer coach. In May, the Whitecaps commissioned an independent review of the allegations. The report has been issued today. It concluded the soccer club did not attempt to cover up allegations of harassment but it said it failed in its communications with the players about the incident. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Jeff Mallett. He is the co-owner of the Vancouver Whitecaps Football Club. Jeff, thank you for coming on. Hey, you're welcome, Mike. What do you want people to know about this report today? What's the message to the public here? Well, first, I want them, to, all of us to, to uh, take pause and thank, again, of the, of the brave women who came forward in, in May directly uh, to the club and myself and Greg Kerfoot and uh, sharing new information and and opening things up. That was really, uh, really key. And so uh, secondly, and our commitment to them was to provide a independent uh, a group, sport law strategy group, to come in and do a full look. And we provided them full access to make sure one of what transpired uh, in 2008 and some of the questions that were raised especially with the new information and secondly really looking at using this as a as a teaching tool not only for the white caps but uh, to make this publicly available which we are across canada for other youth organization as well as professional teams okay what happened what uh, what went wrong here in your opinion were there safeguards or there were procedures that were not followed here that that something went wrong here how do you explain it well, it's called out the report, um, and everyone can see this online and fully available. That um, you know the club was was seen as handling itself uh, uh, correctly throughout uh, throughout the incidents that were were raised, and specifically in 2008. Um, and uh, and so on that point, we we feel good that we were doing the best we could, bringing things forward. Uh, but I think what this allows us to do is uh, continue to raise a b- our bar internally at the club as well as externally of what it takes to run a, uh, a, sp- uh, a, a sports organization uh, that takes um, it takes safe sport to to the next level. And that's that's our that's our mission. OK, a lot of this goes back to a blog post that was published by Kira McCormick, who is a, a player, former player with the uh, Whitecaps women's team. And I know you're I know you're familiar with her. I spoke to her earlier on the show today and she was somewhat 
unconvinced by the re- the report and it, and its independence. And here's what she said. I would have loved to see what the report would have said if it was a neutral body that, you know, was paid for, whether it's by the government or taxpayers or whoever. Um, and, you know, and just have seen and heard what they would have had to say. Okay, she's kind of the original whistleblower on this whole saga. And she was she thinks that the report was not independent enough. Your, your response to that? Really, um, the key here is the women who were directly uh, involved in, in the instances w- which were brought forward. Those are the, the women that really uh, were, were key in moving this to the next step. Uh, we involved uh, them uh, prior to uh, hiring the sport, uh, sport Law Group, which came recommended, as probably some of your listeners may know, 25-plus years as the definitive uh, voice across Canada for hundreds of reports um, on safe sports and really taking the top 15 lawyers in Canada in 1992 and forming this group for these exact reasons. So um, we, we thank the women for uh, supporting this and, and re- recommending the group along with us. And uh, we believe uh, sport law uh, keeps a very high standard uh, of doing something that is, is right for uh, everybody that is in, involved. Okay, so even though you guys commissioned the report, you paid for the report, you're saying the, re- the report was independent. Well, Sport Law does not. Uh, we, we were not involved. Uh, sport Law has done this for hundreds of organizations, which you can go uh, look at their website, and that's why they were were, were brought forward by uh, numerous folks we spoke to, including, of course, uh, the the women who were directly involved in 2008. And uh, we ha- they have high integrity, and uh, we respect that, and don't believe there's any any reason not to. Okay, what is the current status of some of these allegations and complaints? Are there any investigations still going on? Uh, not, to, not that I'm aware of uh, uh, that uh, are still still going on at, at this point. Okay, where does this go from here now? This is a report that came out today with uh, a lot of recommendations, 34 in all. That's a lot. Are, do you, are you going to implement all those recommendations in the report? Uh, yes, I mean first and foremost, we 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 thank them for um, you know there were over 350 people were interviewed. Um, the, the reason it took over a five plus month segment, so really ran deep um, and in talking to a lot of people uh, in all different capacities, from parents to players to coaches, uh, etc. So the in depth study, and we appreciate the recommendations coming back. Most of them we've already implemented, uh, but any that we have not, we're currently in the cycle to do that. And we're also uh, being a a voice out across Canada for other clubs, as mentioned, uh, to look at these and uh, really put emphasis on their their safe sport, which is, we we all know, needs work. Speaking of Jeff Malik, co-owner of the Vancouver Whitecaps, so among those recommendations, which which one would you highlight? Like, what can you say to the public to ensure assure people that this is going to be a safe organization? That people that uh, players are, are not put in any kind of risk situation, and this won't happen again. Well, you can you can see that um, uh, we've had so we've literally since two thousand and eight have uh, over you know hundreds of thousands of, of people come to our organization from our cl- clinics and camps. Um, we we take this very seriously, hold ourselves to the highest yeah. standards. Uh, anyone, please go to our website and under the front page under State Sport, uh, they can look at all of our guidelines, recommendations, policies, uh, third party organizations of which we work with like via sports and numerous others so they can see that not only as as a club do we uh, take this seriously and make it a daily part of our culture 
but also is something that we should uh, be looked at by others as well. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Jeff Mallett. He is the co-owner of the Vancouver Whitecaps Football Club. Let's bring you an update on that brutal strike that continues to drag on on Vancouver Island. Western Forest Products, the United Steelworkers Union, more than 3,000 people off the job now for five months and just no end in sight. Now, you may have heard Premier John Horgan uh, say the other day that he wanted this strike to be quickly resolved. He wanted to put these people back to work. I think that gave people a lot of hope. In fact, he said last week he was hoping the strike could be over on the weekend. That would be last weekend. It did not happen. Instead, yesterday we got the devastating news that talks uh, in the dispute have broken down again. Let's check in with Gabby Wickstrom now. She is the mayor of Port McNeil on Vancouver Island, one of the many towns that have been devastated by this strike. Mayor Wickstrom, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me on today. This, this must have been terribly disappointing news yesterday to see that release from the company saying that the talks had broken down. Oh, I was absolutely gutted, as was uh, as were a lot of people. You know, when you heard Premier Horgan speak or being interviewed and say multiple times to different media that an end was coming, uh, it was imminent, then, you know, you get your hopes up. When they go back yeah. to the table so many times and walk away, you know, you kind of doubt the next time that they sit down something's going to happen. But this time, I think many, many here were very optimistic that something would happen. Okay, that's devastating. I really feel for the families of facing a bleak Christmas here. And I, I know that you and a lot of other mayors and volunteers have been doing your best to try and pick people up and help them have a, a Merry Christmas. You and I were talking earlier about the, uh, the the toy drive that you're holding to sort of get toys for kids who, for some families that are really struggling. Can you tell me how that went and, and the uh, the interaction that you had there with a young mom? Well, the support from the community was overwhelming. They had the toy drive went on for a few weeks, and we had so many toys. They had so many toys. I was only a, a person wrapping there, but they had so many toys that they actually gave them to some of the neighboring communities, Port Alice, who was affected by a mill closure a number of years ago. And I'm I'm there, you know, wrapping presents, greeting people, welcoming them. Young mom comes in, and she was just overcome. She started crying. And um, it was extremely emotional. You know, she's holding a little baby in her arms and, and she kept apologizing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, and the women who are organizing the toy drive, you know, they had a little corner set aside. They've become impromptu counselors for a lot of people. She wasn't the only one they sat down with. You know, and then they sit down for a little while. She composes herself. They go back. She gets to shop. And the whole time she's walking around saying, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, why are you apologizing? You know, we yeah. want to help you. We want to bless you. And don't apologize. And, and I'm sorry. This sucks. This sucks for you. And I'm sorry you're going through this. Okay. I can hear the emotion in your voice. And this is like <clears throat> the human toll that this, this strike has taken on these communities up and down the sort of mid and north island. And do, do you think in, in some ways that do people feel forgotten? Like, I mean, I think that maybe this strike in, in the minds of a lot of people in our province has kind of flown under the radar, maybe hasn't got the attention it deserved. I mean, this is brutal. 3,000 people out of work for five months. That's terrible. Do people feel forgotten, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, we talked earlier. I feel that if those negotiators were at some of these things, if they were going and making deliveries with the loonies for loggers, um, you know, if they saw that woman coming in weeping, 
um, I think their tone would change. You know, for me, it's given me a complete and utter resolve to put, continue to put this at the forefront. I don't know how much longer we can go. The longer we're resilient, we'll recover. But the longer this goes, it's the longer it's going to take us to, to spring back from. We're losing people from our community. We're, using, we're using, losing young people. You know, and those are the people that are going to take over when the guys retire. And, and they're not coming back. Speaking to Port McNeil Mayor Gabby Wickstrom about the forest strike on Vancouver Island, I know that you've been pleading with, and your fellow mayors have as well, for some sort of more aggressive government intervention here. Um, can you tell me what you would like to see the government do? Well, we're meeting tomorrow um, with uh, Minister Trevena and Minister Donaldson. And, uh, I mean, clearly there needs to be some sort of intervention. I have to be very careful. You know, I don't want to... I don't want to choose sides in this matter, but, you know, whether it's legislating them back to work again while still allowing the bargaining process to continue, you know, I'm not saying binding arbitration, whether it's the, the premier and the minister um, of force sitting down in a room and saying, you know, what can be done? We've got to fix this. There's so many people that are cro- caught in the crosshairs of all of this. And, you know, it looks like we're going to hit six months. I'm not hopeful there are going to be any other negotiations before Christmas. So who wants to sit there and say, oh, happy anniversary, six months later? Yeah. We've just got a minute left here, Mayor Wexstrom. What kind of impact has this had on, on the community? I mean, you mentioned sort of the human toll of it, but you've also got, I mean, the economic spin-off damage from this must be brutal, especially when you've got people just p- packing up and leaving town. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the shops should be more jovial, and they're not. People are making smaller purchases. Some of the retail sector has have laid off uh, people because, you know, they're not able to, to offer them uh, enough work. Uh, those are the people I really feel for. They're making minimum wage anyway, and now they've, you know, their hours have been drastically cut back. And even if they are working, nobody's going into the restaurants, or I shouldn't say nobody. Few people are going into restaurants yeah. to eat. They're quite empty. So, okay. yeah. I think you're doing an awesome job on it. Thank you very much for coming on in a very difficult uh, time. Thank you so much for bringing attention to this. I appreciate it. Sure, you bet. That is Gabby Wickstrom. She is the mayor of Port McNeil. Let's update you now on a big story that broke yesterday, and that's the data breach at Life Lab. Cybersecurity experts say this is one of the biggest breaches we've seen in Canada in quite a while. It also shows that the healthcare industry is a prime target for hackers. Life Labs is one of Canada's largest medical services companies. I bet you a lot of people, maybe even the majority of people listening, have had some dealings with Life Labs in their time if you've ever had to go get some blood work or any kind of tests done i know i did that recently after a checkup and yeah i think i paid with my credit card when i went there too so yeah great they've probably got my medical information they got my credit card information who knows what else now the the company involved here uh says when they discovered the hack uh, they started working to make it better they ended up paying the ransom so the hackers were demanding money For the return of the hacked information, the company paid up. I interviewed the president of the company on the show yesterday. I asked him how much they paid. He wouldn't say, but he said he felt that this was something their customers would want them to do. They paid up. They got the information back. He says they haven't seen the stolen data pop up on the dark web, so hoping for the best. Let's talk about this now with Professor Thomas Keenan from the University of Calgary. He's an expert in cybersecurity. He's the author of the book Techno Creep, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi. Hello, Mike. 
here we go again. We've talked a lot about these type of things happening, and this is a this is another one, and it's a big one. Yeah, here. it's a real serious one. I mean, 15 million people in British Columbia and Ontario rely on this company. I mean, you kind of don't have much choice. You need blood work done. You're going to go down, and you trust them to take good care of your data, and apparently right. that didn't happen. Yeah, does it surprise you that a company as big as as big as that and dealing with such sensitive information could get hacked? No, it doesn't surprise me at all because the U.S. military is, gets hacked successfully quite yeah. often, and they take all kinds of precautions, so no system is unbeatable. Uh, it does strike me that they could have taken better security precautions. I mean, they should realize the importance of this data to all of us and uh, and uh, at the very least you know hire a company that tries to attack you we call it red teaming right so you know hire some real bright hackers who want to come in and figure out all the ways to get into your system i don't know if they did that but if they didn't they sure should okay is this like a technological arms race because it seems like no matter how much data protection you bring in or encryption or or firewalls that these hackers just seem to be able to find a way around it yeah, and there's also the human factor. So I did some expert witness work out in Newfoundland, and there was a big breach of a 1,000 people's medical records. Well, it turned out there was one employee, she was an accounting clerk, and she just sat there, and if she saw somebody she knew come in, she would you know, check out what they were in for, which is a breach of her privacy obligations under the law, and she actually was fined $5,000 and fired. So sometimes it's an inside job, sometimes it's the human factor, but often it's just that the technology wasn't designed well enough and uh, the bad guys just have to find one way in. Okay, as you mentioned, Thomas, 15 million customers have got their data compromised here and we're talking credit card information, passwords, usernames, and of course, also very sensitive private uh, medical records. What is the potential hazard here with this information or how could it be potentially misused by these hackers? Yeah, I'm looking at their press release now, and they don't say if medical information has been uh, compromised. So what I saw in one story was, you know, names, addresses, healthcare numbers, and so on. So I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, maybe it is. And if it was compromised, that's really valuable information. In fact, on the dark web now, people tell me, you know, your social security number, social insurance number, that's worth maybe a dollar. Your credit card, $5. But your health record's $500. And the reason is it has all kinds of stuff about you. It can be used for blackmail. It can be used for extortion. It can be used for identity theft. So the gold standard data on people now is their health record. Okay, the company says that they're monitoring the dark web now and they don't see any of the stolen data popping up here i mean that's obviously no guarantee that it can't be used right i mean maybe this company they take the money with the ransom but maybe they made a copy of all the stuff before they returned it isn't that possible they probably did make a copy the only question is if they destroyed the copy it reminds me there was a dilbert cartoon once and the pointy-headed boss says um print out the internet for me i want to take it home and read it tonight so the idea that they're watching the dark web what does that mean even okay they can look in likely sites in the dark web they can look at places where people try to sell this kind of information they're never going to find it all that's why we call it the dark web okay what do you think about the company's decision to pay the ransom i interviewed the the president of the company yesterday and i asked him how much they paid he wouldn't say but he said that he felt that they wanted to do what, what their customers would want them to do. And he felt that their customers would want them to do whatever they could 
to secure the information and get it back. So they decided to pay up. They paid the ransom to get the information back. Do you think that's a smart move? Law enforcement will always tell you don't pay. But, I mean, if it's your kid who's kidnapped, they'll tell you that too, right? Never pay the ransom. The answer is it's a business decision. I think the best example is a little wine shop here in Calgary. A couple of years ago, right around Christmas, got ransomed, and they were asked for $500 in Bitcoin. And the wine shop owner didn't know what a Bitcoin was, but he got somebody to find some. And he said, I paid because I got my information back. He was lucky. And also, you know, I needed it. I needed my customer list. I needed my supplier list. So sometimes it is a business decision. So I don't want to shame anybody by saying they paid the ransom. Of course, they tell you it only encourages these guys. What I do have to say is there's pretty good statistics that you might pay the ransom and still not get anything you can use. Yeah, I know. You know, I I take your point about maybe it's not a great idea to negotiate with these guys. Like, you know, there's that old line, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And these guys are kind of like almost like cyber terrorists. They're going to steal this data and then hold you hostage to to get it back. I I wonder if you just pick up on your last point, is there a danger that it just sends uh, the wrong message that these hackers can win, that if they can break in and steal this data, they can make money? Certainly sends that message. It should send a second message, which is everybody who has this kind of data should drop everything right now. I don't care if Christmas is coming and run some of those security checks. Make sure that they really are tight because we see what it does to this uh, company to be in the headlines like this. You don't want to be the next hospital, you know, university, health region or whatever that, that gets hit the same way. What do you think about the timeline of this thing? Because we're told by the company yesterday that they discovered this breach in late, late, late October, around November 1st. And then they've been working furiously behind the scenes to to get the information back and investigating. And that's why we're we're only finding out about it now, like six weeks later. Do you think that that's the way it was handled is okay, Or do you think this the company should have disclosed immediately? Like, look, your information has been compromised. You know, I've heard worse. Uber sat on a breach for a year. Okay, they had a breach of data and they didn't tell anybody about it. They paid people. Same type of situation, paid a ransom. So a few months is probably reasonable if they were actively investigating. So if they were trying to, you don't want to mess up an investigation that's in progress. On the other hand, it is people's data. I think a lot hinges on something we don't know, which is whether actual medical data was out there. And I I can't tease that out from what they put out on their press release or any of the stories. If it's just name, address, and credit card, well, that's probably out there already uh, in some ways, or it's still bad. If it's medical information that wasn't available on the dark web before, then that's very bad. Okay, what do you say to companies, maybe public sector organizations as well, that are worried about these kind of attacks? And as you mentioned, these hackers are smart. They seem to be able to get around any security protocols that that come out. So it's it's like an arms race like we discussed earlier. But what do you think that the people who are in charge of safeguarding this private information, what should they be doing in order to try and foil this? I hate to say go look for another job because you'll never win, but it's about to get worse. I mean, if you call it an arms race, the bad guy's about to get nuclear weapons, and that nuclear weapon is the Internet of Things. So, like, think about a hospital. They always get emails. Uh, One of your employees clicked on a bad link. We are now in your network, and we're going to encrypt your patient files. But I predict we're going to see, we're not going to encrypt your patient files. That's like 2018. We know that you have a picker x-ray unit. You have a a Siemens MRI machine. And we know the flaws in those machines because they all have flaws. 
if you don't pay our ransom, we'll just kill a patient every other day until you do. And that Internet of Things vulnerability is really going to scare people. And it doesn't just have to be a hospital. It could be your house. I've seen a way to hack your Nest thermostat to turn up or turn down the heat. So uh, the Internet of Things is going to be a big thing here. Okay. I think this is frustrating for people whose information has been compromised, which includes millions of people in Ontario and British Columbia in this case, because we're always told that we've got to take responsibility for our own private information. Change your passwords. Uh, be careful about how you how you manage your own personal passwords and information. Then we find out that the companies that we trust the information to, they've been broken into. Is, is there anything else that we as individuals can do to try and protect ourselves from this kind of stuff? Yep, we can sue them. And that's actually what I was involved in 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 Newfoundland was the thousand and some odd patients who privacy had been infringed in that case were getting together a class action to sue for damages because in a lot of provinces there's something called a tort of intrusion upon seclusion, which basically means if your privacy has been violated, even if we don't know that you've been harmed, just the fact that your privacy is violated is bad enough. So, you know, long-term, we are going to see if these are private companies, we're going to see them being sued. Oh, do you think that this, do you think Life Labs is vulnerable here? They, I think they might be. I don't know. I don't know the details of the case because I don't know what information got out there. They're being very yeah. coy about that. And maybe that's a criticism of them. They really ought to fess up what they lost. Thomas, thanks for coming on. Okay, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. That is Thomas Keenan. He's a professor at the University of Calgary. He is an expert in cybersecurity. His book is Techno Creep, talking about that breach announced yesterday at Life Labs. More than 15 million Canadians having their personal records hacked here, including a lot here in British Columbia.